Well, good morning, Grace Point. It is great to be back with you uh, again. Um, I believe the last time I was uh, here was in May, and uh, I am very, uh, very thankful to be back and uh, share with you. Uh, it's always great coming to paradise. Uh, last Sunday, I was not in paradise. I was in Kensington, Philadelphia. Uh, admittedly, uh, by most people who live in the Philadelphia region, Kensington is the worst neighborhood of the city. Um, in Kensington, the audience last week looked very different than it does this morning. I love going there for uh, multiple reasons. The two main reasons is I love the diversity. Uh, every color, every age, every generation, every background, and uh, the dynamic is extremely different. But I also love the church because back in the early 80s, there were three of us who went to the Kensington neighborhood in Philadelphia on a weekly basis, and we had a club with young kids in the neighborhood that we worked with. The intention was to build relationships, bridges of relationships, to be able to share Christ with them. Here we are 40 years later, and some of those individuals who came to Christ 40 years ago are now leaders in that church. And that thrills my heart to see what God has done and is doing in that neighborhood. It's also a very stark reminder of how different people are and how, especially at this stage of my life, how important it is to think about where I want to invest my life. And so this morning we're going to talk about um, what I simply call living missionally. And, and really, all that means is, where do you want to invest your life? Now, depending on who you ask that question to, you're going to get very different answers. Uh, for example, if you ask a financial consultant or your financial advisor, your financial advisor is going to talk to you about, you want to be thinking ahead and planning ahead. And especially for an old guy like me, uh, you, you think about retirement and what am I going to live on? How am I going to support myself in years when I don't have a, a real job anymore? If you ask uh, an athlete, uh, we've just finished watching the Olympic Games, you ask them, what's life's greatest investment? They would tell you what discipline it takes for them to excel in their sport. What does it take for them to get to the average person playing on a sports team to elevate to be a world-class athlete in their chosen sport. Ask a doctor, what's life's greatest investment? He said, keep your body healthy. This is the only body that you get. So you need to take care of it. And these are some things that you ought to do to take care of your physical health. Ask a scientist, what's the most important investment to make with your time? They would say, well, to study things, to study diseases, to, to find cures for things, to, to think about the future, to think about the space program, or to think about how we're going to clean up outer space now that we're littering it as well, or to clean up the earth, which we have polluted. Depends on what kind of scientist you ask as to what kind of answer you're going to get. Well, it's interesting that one day, a lawyer came to Jesus, and he came and he asked him a question. And it was a very simple and a very straightforward question. And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how do I need to invest my life here and now so that I can have eternal life then and there? And it launched into a story that Jesus told that is one of the most familiar passages or stories in the Bible. We often refer to it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want to boil it down. If you've been here before, when I've preached or, or spoken, I, I, I like to keep it simple. 
I like to, to bring things down, make sure it's on the, the lowest shelf, but hopefully that everyone can grasp it, but give you enough to make you uneasy in your seat so that you have to rethink things about your own personal life and about how you're spending or investing your life. And to do that today, I'm, I'm going to take a very different approach. And I'm glad that, that Tim is here so that he understands what my intentions are. Because this is very unusual for me. Because I'd much rather kind of exegete a passage. But this is a story that Jesus told. So we, we can't exegete too much of it because we don't know if this was a real story or just a story that Jesus made up to make his point as a parable. So I don't want to read too much into it, but I don't want to look past the things that Jesus raises to the surface as important points about how we interact with other people. So this morning, I want to tell you two stories, actually. We're going to rehearse the story from Scripture, from Luke chapter 10, is where we're headed. And to parallel that, I'd like to get it real in our minds, and I'm going to tell you a personal story. Now, the danger of doing that is that it may sound like I'm drawing attention to myself. That's really not my intent or desire this morning. It's simply to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make from the conversation that Jesus was having with his lawyer. So, if you have found your way to Luke chapter 10, allow me to read this passage, and then we're just going to refer to it, because it's so familiar to you and to me, and I think you'll catch the drift of how we're going to identify with the main characters in this dialogue. Luke chapter 10, we'll start reading from verse 25, and uh, this morning I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, that is Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, answered him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, verse 29, he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, and then he came to the place when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But, verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's um, hit the pause button for just a moment and let's pray together before we proceed. Father God, thank you for the privilege of 
opening your word with us, with our, all of us together this morning, those who are here in person, those who are watching online. And Father, we're, we're simply inviting your spirit to be at work in our hearts through this text of Scripture to help us to look at it, hopefully in a fresh way, to ask ourselves some questions as to how we're doing at loving God and loving others. How are we investing our lives is the question that we want to ask ourselves this morning. Are we living in such a way that is very missional? And Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and help us to figure out how we would answer the same question that Jesus asked the lawyer. Who is our neighbor? And what is it that we're supposed to do when our paths cross? Thank you for what we trust you to do in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, we ask these things, and thank you for what you will do. Amen. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is to focus on the cast of characters and talk about five different attitudes, which I think are revealed in the text, which are still prominent and present in our world today. And they give us insight into how we live missionally. And maybe I better define that so that we're all on the same page. When I'm talking about living missionally, I'm talking about this idea of investing our lives so that we are building God's kingdom by simply doing what Jesus said in this passage, by loving God and loving people. In other words, we're on the same team as God. We're thinking like Jesus did and being very intentional about how we invest our life for kingdom purposes. So let's jump into it. First of all, the first important character, of course, is the lawyer. And to him, this discussion was simply a problem to discuss. We see that in verses 25 to 29 when he approached Jesus, and we find at the end of the story that Jesus once again engaged him and forced him to respond, to give an answer to see if he had really understood the point of the parable. Now, the expert in the law was guilty of asking two insincere questions because he had ulterior motives. And the text makes it very clear in verse 25 that his first motive was entrapment. He wanted to test Jesus. It says, quite frankly, that he wanted to, he stood up for the purpose of putting him to the test. He wanted to see if Jesus really knew what the law and the prophets said and how Jesus interpreted them. But he had an ulterior motive. His second ulterior motive was to eliminate guilt. And so when Jesus answers the question, and he says, you are to love the Lord your God, it was a, a takeoff of the great Shema from Deuteronomy chapter, 20, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now the lawyer has to eliminate the possibility of guilt in his life, and he has to justify himself, according to verse 29. And that's why he asks a second question. And he said, who is my neighbor? Well, we'll talk about that just a little bit before we move forward. Because in his thinking, Jesus knew that his interpretation of the law and the prophets would suggest that his neighbor was a fellow Jew, a participant in this covenant relationship with God that the Jewish people were proud of, to the point 
of looking down on those who did not have a relationship with this God. Now, let me just pause for a moment, if we could just put a quarter in the meter and park here for just, just a little bit. There are really three different kinds of groups of people. I'm talking big picture. When we read through the Bible, there were, there were three different kinds of group, groups of people. The, the first were the people who were Jewish, those who had this covenant relationship with God. Now, the bigger bucket means everyone else who doesn't fall in bucket number one, and those we call the Gentiles. They were simply not Jewish people. They may have even been descendants of Abraham, if you trace back their family heritage, they may have been descendants of Abraham, but they were not descendants through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, then there's this third bucket, and they're kind of a, a smaller bucket, which might even be an, an overflow bucket of the Gentiles, and, and we call them Samaritans. We hear all about them, but let's make sure that we understand who the Samaritans were. The, the easiest way for me to describe Samaritans is that they were half-breeds. The community of Samaritans, which, by the way, still exists today, is north of Judea, north of Jerusalem, and the, the tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans had been going on for 700-plus years. We date it back and trace it back to events in the Old Testament, and I don't have time to go into great detail, but the Assyrians conquered the Jews because of their idolatry. They were taken into captivity, but the Assyrians did something very, very um, uh, wise by some standards, and it was a strategy that they were trying to maintain peace in the land. So what they did was they took some of the Jews out of the land and moved them to Assyria, and they brought some Assyrians from the north, and they brought them to live in Judea, northern Judea. Now, what happens eventually, over the period of time, these people intermarry. Well, not they're, they're, they're not pure Jewish people anymore. They're half-Jewish, or half-breeds, and because they lived in a region called Samaria, of course, the name, hence, Samaritans. So this expert in the law is trying to confirm in his mind, he's trying to justify himself that the only neighbors he has to really respect and care for are the people who were like him, Jewish people. But this discussion was going to get derailed as Jesus gives the parable, because what Jesus is going to describe defied the society, the society and the religious norms of the day. And this was simply to the lawyer a problem to discuss. I have a little saying that I like, I probably overuse it, but we we have a tendency to discuss things to death. And here's my little saying. It's kind of a little philosophy. That when everything is said and done, there's always more said than done. We talk things to death. You can turn on the news channels at any time of the day, and you have individuals who are talking issues in our world to death, and you can find the channel that agrees with what you purport to be truth. But at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, there's always more said than done. Let me personalize it. On April 13th, 1979, I got a call in the middle of the night from a pregnant 16-year-old teenager who I had met the year before at a camp where I was speaking. 
This young, young lady, her name was Carlotta, um, was very unusual. I'll describe a little bit more about her in, uh, in moments to come. But she called me in the middle of the night, April 13th, 1979, and she asked for our help. Now, one thing you do need to know about her was that she was in the foster care system. When I met her at age 15, she had lived in 16 different foster homes already by the age of 15. She was now 16 and six months pregnant. And when I had her on the phone, I knew because my wife and I had maintained contact with her. We had had her into our home multiple times. We had met some of her family, quote, unquote, one of 14 brothers and sisters. And by this point in time, by the night of that phone call, she had been in 21 different foster homes, and she was either thrown out of or had run away from every single foster home that she was in. So when the phone rings in the middle of the night and I answer the phone, she says, Jim, I ran away again. I said, okay, how long have you been on the run? She said, three days. Um, where have you been staying? Uh, I find a car that's unlocked and I sleep in a car. What have you been eating? Anything that I can find, usually people's trash. And she said, oh, by the way, I'm six months pregnant. Will you come and get me? So here's a runaway, a 16-year-old runaway, six months pregnant. She's alone. She's homeless. She's sleeping in unlocked cars. She is carrying all of her possessions in this world. I, I wish I had a bag that I could illustrate. You remember the old, for those of you who are old enough, you remember the paper bags we used to get at the grocery store? The paper sacks? That's what all of her possessions were in, a paper bag. And she said, will you come pick me up? Now, this was no longer a problem to discuss. My wife and I had discussed on multiple occasions her situation. We felt badly about it. We did what we could to try to encourage her, but this was more than a, a problem to discuss. Will you come pick me up? It was a yes or a no question. We didn't even have time to pray about it. She needed an answer. And I said yes. Found out where she was. Went to pick her up. Brought her back to her home that night. Discussing her problems that night or any other night solved absolutely nothing. Now, forgive me for tap dancing on people's toes, but we in the church are often guilty of discussing things to death. We can talk and talk and talk about what we think we ought to do, what we think ought, ought to happen. We can come up with an idea, with a plan, or we can, we can understand what the will of God is for someone else's life, and they should go do it. But at the end of the day, when all is said and done, there's a lot more talking. There's a lot more discussion than there is action. But that's only one attitude that's reflected in the story that Jesus tells. The second attitude was the attitude of the robbers. See, for the attitude of the robbers, the man was simply a victim to exploit. We see that in verse 30. Now, on more than a dozen occasions, I have stood exactly on top of that Judean mountain range which overlooks this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Some of you might even remember when I talked about Zacchaeus, preached on that, the subject of Zacchaeus some time ago, 
I showed you some pictures of that Roman road that connects the city of Jerusalem and the city of Jericho. Some parts of it are still seen today. It was that exact road that the priest and the Levite would have traveled down, and everyone knew the road who traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho or vice versa. It descends about 3,000 feet, so it's all downhill to, Jer to Jericho. It's a steep, winding, rocky, desolate, deserted region. The terrain is perfect to hide and ambush unsuspected travelers. And so that's where the robbers made the decision that this man, who was apparently traveling alone, was a victim who could be exploited. And it says in verse 30 that they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now again, let's just pause for a moment and make sure we understand this. Why? I mean, robbing. Okay, we, we can kind of get that. You know, maybe some of you have been robbed. Maybe some of you have been mugged. You know, I, I, I can understand that. Last week when I was in Kensington, I was constantly looking over my shoulder. It's one of the worst sections of the city. Murder rate is off the charts. There are only two occupations in Kensington. You're either a drug dealer or you're a prostitute. I get the robbing part, but why, why strip him of all of his clothes? You know why? Because in the first century, as is often the case today, clothes help us with identity. The way a person dresses tells us a lot about the person. The first century was no different than it is in the 21st century. You could tell who the wealthy people were. You could tell by what region of the country people were coming from because the way they dressed gave that away. You could tell what economic strata of society they were from. But when someone is naked and afraid, laying on the side of a road, nothing of value left, Clothing gone, possessions gone, anything of worth, you know absolutely nothing about who the individual is who is in need. It was the first verified case, if this is a true story, of stolen identity. Are we guilty sometimes of stereotyping people by the way they look? If I brought my son and daughter-in-law with me to church this morning and had them come up here for a moment and stand in front of you, I guarantee that you would form some opinions simply by virtue of the tattoos that cover significant parts of their body. the way people dress. I have a large group of people that I know in South Florida. Every time I go to see them, they have a different color hair. It's a thing. Mine has always been brown or gray. But we form opinions based on what we see. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan didn't have that advantage. They didn't know if the man lying on the side of the road was Jewish, Gentile, or Samaritan. They only knew he was laying there. And statistically speaking, two-thirds of those who saw him walked right on by. So... Carlotta was a young girl who had been exploited most of her life. Again, 
Time moves quickly. I think the clock is on fast forward. She came from a family with an alcoholic father, a mentally unstable mother. Both of them exploited her physically, emotionally, sexually, and at the age of nine, she was removed from her home and entered the foster care system. I told you how many times she had moved, how many places she had lived. By the age of 16, pregnant again, it was with her second child. The government had paid for her first abortion. And she assured me on the car ride home when I was picking her up, don't worry about the pregnancy. She said, I'm going to get aborted. A pedophile who was masquerading as a youth pastor was the biological father of the child that she was carrying then. To say that she was a young woman who was exploited would be a gross understatement. So to the lawyer, it was simply a problem to the discuss. To the robbers, it was simply a victim to exploit. Thirdly, to the priest and the Levite, it was a nuisance to avoid. That's clear from the text, verses 31 and 32. It was simply a nuisance to avoid. It couldn't be more obvious. Both the priest and the Levite were coming from Jerusalem. That was where they lived and worked for a season, and then on their time off, they would go back to their residence, which was most likely in Jericho. And the archaeological evidence is very clear that that's where most of the priests and Levites lived. These priests and Levites, and by the way, just make sure you're clear in your mind what the priests did. These were the priests who offered sacrifices for people who brought the animals for a variety of different sacrifices, but including burnt offerings for sacrifices for their sin. That's what a priest did. The Levites were charged, according to the Old Testament, with all of the care that went into the temple complex and the temple system. They would do everything from cutting and chopping wood to changing the water in the bowls and getting fresh water there as they were cleaning the sacrifices to be offered, collecting the blood, all of these kinds of things. This was their job description. In our language today, we would say that they were in full-time ministry. Only it was the temple, not the church. There was no church yet. They knew the law of Moses. They knew the Torah. They knew immediately the lawyer understood to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength was one of the, one of the keystone passages of the Torah. In fact, they still, in, the, in Israel, if you go with me today or look at pictures, just Google the Western Wall and you'll see the Orthodox Jews wearing phylacteries, leather boxes on their heads that have portions of Scripture. This very verse from Deuteronomy 6, which Jesus requotes to the expert in the law. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The priest and the Levite knew the Bible, we would say. Oh, but a lot of people do. But herein lies part of the problem. Knowing the Bible and doing the Bible are vastly different. If anyone, if anyone should have known how to live missionally in their day, in their context, it would have been these two men who knew both the Word of God and had opportunity, literally, right on their doorstep. Now, why didn't they stop? Well, it's conjecture. Uh, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know why they didn't stop. I, ha I have a couple of holy hunches. Maybe they thought, this is a dangerous section. I need to walk faster. 
Maybe I just need to get home as soon as possible. I don't want to run the risk of touching a, a body. They didn't know if the man was alive or dead. We don't want to run the risk of touching the body and becoming unclean. Maybe they were passive. Maybe they were complacent. Maybe it was out of their comfort zone. Maybe it wasn't their spiritual gift. Maybe they were in a hurry. Maybe they were late for dinner. Maybe they were, I don't know. All I know is that they made every effort to get past that man as quickly as possible and to avoid him at all costs. You all know what that's like when you see the homeless person with a sign and they're glaring at you through the windshield and you're trying not to make contact with them. Inviting Lottie into our home was very, very disruptive. She was a nuisance. She was a nuisance. She had learned skills um, of manipulation <laughs> for survival. I was an LBC student at the time. My wife and I were living on a tight budget. I was working for the church. My wife was working full time. It was inconvenient for us to think about having a pregnant 16-year-old invade our house, put tension on our marriage. Just think about becoming, as a 20-something, becoming an instant parent of a pregnant 16-year-old. We didn't even have any children of our own biologically at that point. It would cut into our time, what free time we had. It would change the dimension and direction of our ministry, our obligations. She was a nuisance, and she was messed up because of the dysfunctional background that she came from. The easiest thing would have been for the next day for us to take her back to youth and family services and put her back in the system and say, she needs another place to go. We chose not to do that. I didn't even know what missional living was back then, but in my heart, in my spirit, I couldn't do that, and neither could my wife. We made the decision to simply say to her, you're welcome to stay with us as long as you like. It ended up being a year and a half at which point in time God moved us from our home to the Philadelphia area. She moved in with my parents. She was the only one of her brothers and sisters to graduate from high school and the only one who did not serve time in prison. So to the chief priest, or the, the, the priest and the Levite, she was simply a nuisance to avoid. Sometimes we're pretty good at that, avoiding people who disrupt our comfortable lifestyle. Well, this last, uh, next to the last one is very quick. Uh, to the innkeeper. To the innkeeper, the man by the side of the road was simply a customer to serve. And I don't want to be disparaging or, or cast a dark shadow on that because uh, it was, was simply a business transaction. It was not a, a blight on the reputation of the innkeeper by any, by any means. He, he rented out a room. It, it, was, it was kind of the forerunner of the bed and breakfast that we know today. That's, that's all an inn was in those days. Uh, think, of a, um, think of a Motel 6 that is like below the normalcy scale by about 50 points. You're talking about a room with a mat on the floor and maybe a piece of bread for breakfast. And the Samaritan takes the man to this innkeeper after he finds an inn, and it sounds like he knows where to go because it sounds like he made trips back and forth. And he... The innkeeper agreed to take care of the man. He wasn't obligated to do it. But to him, it was, there was a financial transaction which occurred. The Samaritan said, I, 
I'm going I'm to spend the night here myself. I, I'm going to do what I can to take care of him, but then I've got to get going. Will you take care of him? And when I come back through town, I'll pay you for whatever I owe you. So it's possible. I don't want to read too much into this because it's a story. But it's possible that, that the innkeeper may have even known the Samaritan. But as, who would be the innkeeper in my story? Well, the innkeeper would have been youth and family services because she would have just been one more runaway, one more ward of the state, one more foster child to be placed, one more client, one more file to update, and one more, probably more than one, phone call to make to try to find a place for her to go. But to God, she was much more than that. So we have a lawyer who simply wants to discuss a problem. We have robbers who simply wanted to exploit and victimize. We have a priest and Levite who don't want to be bothered. We have an innkeeper who's just taking care of his business. But we've got a Samaritan to wrap up with this morning. To the Samaritan, she was a person to love. And I'm, I'm going to do this very quickly. I'm just going to read down through my list. There were, very, there were seven, at least seven, very specific things that Jesus calls attention to for the lawyer. It says in verse 33 that compassion was demonstrated, that he took pity on him. Prejudice was removed and risk was taken. The moment that he went over to check the man and found that he was still alive, he didn't know any more than the priest and the Levite would have known about the man's background or heritage because, remember, the text said he was half dead. We don't even know if he was conscious. Help was offered. What he did, what the Samaritan did, was he poured on oil and wine, which also had medicinal purposes in the first century. There was servanthood that was practiced. It says that he apparently took his own animal that he was riding. Some of the texts say it was a donkey. We're not sure. But he put the man on his own donkey, and he walked while he put the man who was half dead on his animal. Time was invested. He took him to the inn. He stayed overnight. He took care of him. Money was sacrificed. He, he took out two silver coins, two denarii, and he promised the innkeeper, I will square up just the running tab. Let me know what I owe you. I'll pay the bill the next time through. But most importantly, as we wrap up this morning, was that theology at the end of the story was clarified. Because when Jesus is all done telling the story, he now turns right back to the lawyer again, and he asks this question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, he didn't even call him a Samaritan. He simply said, the one who showed mercy. That was the theology that needed to be clarified. It doesn't matter who the person is. It is still an individual of eternal worth, created in the image of God. It doesn't matter if they look like me, if they think like me. None of that matters if they're still drawing breath. It is a person who bears God's image. And the lawyer had to get that. And Jesus made him draw that conclusion himself, and he closes the story with these words, you go and do likewise. See, missional living occurs very naturally as we travel through life. I, di I didn't go to bed that night hoping my phone would ring in the middle of the night and a pregnant teenager would ask for me to come pick her up. 
it often is in contrast to the way other people live. Some people are taken back when we show kindness, when we show compassion. It demands personal involvement. It demands that we think holistically about a person, about every part of who they are, whether it's a physical need, an emotional need, what is it that I can do to be of assistance? And this will cost you something. And it reminds us in our culture today where we are, where in our theological context of the church is not simply about assembling together, being here. It's about going and doing something like a couple of people heading to Maine. It shows and values and reflects God's values. And it doesn't get more simple than this. If we say that we love God, we give evidence of that by loving people. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it, it doesn't stop there with us singing the worship songs and hearing a sermon, increasing our knowledge. The other wing on that plane is going and doing. And that's always going to involve people. Because that's where you have to make a choice, who am I going to invest my life in? Because friends, maybe you've never thought of it this way, but the only thing that you're going to take from this side of eternity to the next side of eternity, when we walk through the death door, the only thing that we take with us are the people who we have invested in here and now who have crossed the line of faith. That's the only thing that we get to take. That's why when we do funerals, uh, we never have a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Because there's nothing on this side of eternity that goes with us. Except the people who we choose to invest our lives in. Because that's all that matters. Worshiping God, loving God, and loving people. Now, how did the story end? Wouldn't you like to know? I'll tell you in two minutes. In a bizarre series of events, fast forward with me 21 years. Fast forward with me 21 years. When that baby was three days old, I brought the baby out of the hospital. I held the baby. I dedicated the baby to the Lord I prayed over her, it was a little girl who was born, and I handed her to adoptive parents. 21 years later, at Lancaster Bible College, there's a student waiting there to introduce her mother and her aunt to myself and my wife. And her mother made one statement, and she said, I didn't know any of this about the student. I knew who the student was, but I had no relationship with her. The student, the mother said, Pastor so-and-so is the one who arranged for Amy's adoption. Now, there were only a handful of things that we knew about that baby. Obviously, we knew the date the baby was born. We knew the place the baby was born. We knew that it was a girl. We knew that she had been named Amy because Carlotta was permitted to name the baby. And we know that she chose an unusual spelling of the name Amy. And so by the next day, we had confirmed that this third-year student at Lancaster Bible College was indeed the same three-day-old baby that I had held in my hands and dedicated to God. And she was there studying teacher education at Lancaster Bible College with the intention of being a teacher abroad on a mission field. Four weeks later, My wife was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, and she died about a year after that. But during that year, we had the blessing of having Amy to our house many times. 
And every time I looked at her, every time I hugged her and kissed her, I was constantly reminded that loving God and loving people had to be part of the DNA of my life forever. It was burned into my brain and into my soul. That last year of my wife's life, every time she saw Amy, it was a living illustration that we have a God who delights in doing the things that were impossible. And although we didn't know from the beginning what the end would look like, we knew that God had this under control. And when you're willing to take that risk and invest yourself in the lives of other people, sometimes it is a huge step of faith because you don't know what impact down the road. God did not have to reveal that to us, but in his grace, he chose to. What might God do through you this week with the people who you might you might be thinking that you want to walk the other side of the road. But instead, hit the pause button and to become the hands and feet of Jesus to that individual. Pastor Tim, will you come? Father God, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for these illustrations. I don't think they're there by accident. I know better than that in my in my theology, they're there for a reason for us to understand. And there are lots of ways that we can, can think about these things. But these are stories that are put there for us to learn from, to help us think. What does it mean to say we love God? What does it mean to say that we're loving our neighbor? That means we're going to dive into the deep end of the pool and tread water and do whatever is necessary that makes us wet and messy but to be involved in a process of trying to show the love of Christ and we don't know when or what that may look like but Father at least help us to cultivate the willing heart to be the good Samaritan we pray in Jesus name